This morning we bring to a conclusion our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. I remember when we began this study and maybe a few weeks, even a few months before we started the study, I remember telling people we're going to study 1 Thessalonians together and I would get this curious look. Huh. It was kind of that expression in their mind, 1 Thessalonians, huh? Isn't there something a little more compelling? Isn't there another book like Revelation or something like that that'd be a little more jazzy for us? Well, I think as we finish our time over these past many weeks, these many months that we've been together in studying this very rich book, I think you will agree with me and you'll come away saying this has been a very helpful study to us in so many, many different ways to hear of God's grace in the life of this very young but well-taught church. It's very been very applicable for all of us. As you remember, this book is a short exhortation from the Apostle Paul to a very young-in-the-faith congregation in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital city of the region of Macedonia, which is the northern part and region of what is modern-day Greece. There was no church in the city when the Apostle Paul arrived. He set up his own tent-making shop, more than likely, in the Agora or the marketplace. He began to instruct from the Word of God in the synagogues on the Sabbath day, and he began to see people converted to the faith. But it was not at all a warm welcome to Christianity in the city of Thessalonica. In fact, as people were being converted from the synagogue, The apostle began to feel some of the backlash from that. Some of the Jews became quite jealous of the apostle Paul and all of the converts who were coming to faith and this new fledgling church that had begun begun, that seemed like a rival to the synagogue. And so, as Acts 17.5 says, some of those jealous Jews... They got together some of the, quote, wicked men from the marketplace, and they formed a mob and started an uproar that had Paul actually run out of the city. He had only been there a few short weeks. The text says in Acts chapter 17 that he had reasoned for at least three Sabbath days. We gather that he had probably set up his marketplace sometime before then, And it could have been as much as three months that he spent in the city, but there wasn't a lot of time before he's run out of the city. He runs south to the city of Berea, where he is teaching the more noble-minded Bereans who are searching out the scriptures daily to see if Paul is teaching them accurately. And yet those jealous Jews in Thessalonica heard that he was in the city. They come rushing down to run him out of that city. He goes even further south, likely ultimately into the city of Corinth after a short stint in Athens, and it's there in the city of Corinth, quite an embattled church to begin with, where he begins to pin this letter, not knowing if these young Christians had actually maintained their faith in Christ, which is a lot of the burden of this book. While in Corinth, he's filled with thoughts, wondering, have they walked away? Are they still in the faith? He loves these young believers with great, great affection. You'll remember some of the words that he penned to them, such as in chapter 2 and verse 7, when he said, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. It's how he thought of these 
precious believers. And he, he said, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, our souls, we invested in you. Just as we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. That's the affection that he had for this young church. He was so concerned for their well-being, not knowing if they stayed in the faith that he sent his young protege, Timothy, probably the closest ministry associate he ever had in his life, who reflected the heart of the Apostle Paul unlike anyone else. He sent him back to Thessalonica to find out about them. Look at chapter 3 for just a moment to remind yourself of the the kind of love that he had for these believers and the concern that he had. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. For indeed... When we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, and notice he says this again, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Now listen to his heart. For now, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. He loved this church, didn't he? He had such deep affection for the people in this congregation. He could not stand one day to pass without knowing where are they in their walk with Christ. And now at the very end of this letter, he prays again for them. As he's prayed several times through the letter, he is praying again for them that God might completely bring them into final salvation and sanctification. Why does he write the way he does here? Not just his affection throughout the letter, but even in these closing remarks that he makes, those closing words that Mark has read to you this morning, why does he pen these words in this way? This is not just a formality. This is not just a formal way to end a letter. With all the affection that has been in his heart, he writes these words as well. They're loaded They are activities that we should actually look to to use that would cause us to keep growing in the Christian faith. In fact, I think if you could pursue these activities, you would find yourself constantly 
excelling more and more in your own faith, growing more and more in your affection for each other as a church family, which needs to happen, which should happen day after day, week after week. So what activities would cause us to actually use and apply all the truths that we have found in this letter, all the things that we have unearthed together? What activities would cause us to apply this letter well? Well, as we come to the finality of this letter, we're looking together. We began it last Lord's Day and we'll finish it today. Five different summary encouragements Five different summary encouragements, five encouragements, final encouragements that help us to continue to grow in the gospel truth that we know. That was the theme of this letter, grow in what you know. Grow in what you know in regard to the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope that was the outline of the book in chapter 1, verse 3. Chapters 1 through 3 described how you grow in the work of faith. Much of that was Paul describing how he first came to them and preached the gospel and how they responded, and they needed to look back. They needed to look back. How did you come to faith? Do you see the kind of zeal that you had in those early days? Chapters 4 and 5 described that labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that comes from growing in your love for each other and you're awaiting the coming of Christ And he summarized all of those things up in verses 12 to 22 of chapter 5 with those short encouragements and exhortations to grow even more. And now he sums it up. Five different summary ideas, encouragements, so that you don't lose this, so that you keep growing in the things that you know to be true. What are they? Number one. Pray with complete confidence. We looked at this one last Lord's Day. Pray with complete confidence. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. He will do it pray. That's what the Apostle Paul's doing there. He's praying. He's praying with complete confidence, a confidence that says, God will finish what he's begun in you. And you should pray that way. So pray for complete sanctification. Pray for complete security. If you did that, if you prayed in that way for each other as a congregation, you would find yourself growing in the things that you know because you have to rehearse the truths over and over again as requests of prayer that you're praying on behalf of other people. It'll help you to grow. There's a second encouragement that we see that will assist us in continuing to grow in the gospel truth we already know. It's in verse 25. Intercede for your leaders. Intercede for your leaders. Pray for the people who lead you in the word. This has been a providential year for us to concentrate on prayer, hasn't it? In fact, the very first Sunday of this year, we opened with an examination of Romans chapter 15 and how to pray for those who preach the word. Here in this finality of our year, we come again to another injunction to pray for those who lead you in the word. 
Evidently, the Bible thinks that's a pretty important thing for us to do, to pray for those who are leading us in the Scripture. In fact, in verse 25, where it says, brethren, pray for us. Some, some ancient Greek manuscripts actually have the word also, as if to say, brethren, pray for us also. I've been praying these things for you, that you would grow in sanctification, that God would make your salvation complete, so pray that for us also. Pray for us. Pray that the leaders would be sanctified. Pray that the leaders would be secure in Christ. You ever think about that? That your leaders are merely brothers. Struggling with the same things that you struggle with. Struggling with the faith. And some to even keep the faith. You should pray in the same way that you're praying for all of the flock. Pray for your leaders also. All of them. The elders. The deacons. Those lay leaders who are leading you in teaching the word of God to you. Pray by name for them that they would see final salvation. Pray for them. Their sins are real. Their fears are just as real as your fears are. Their battle to become Christ-like doesn't look significantly different than yours does. The circumstances are different, perhaps. The fight is the same fight. With all the affection that Paul poured out of his heart for this church, I want you to hear that affection in his plea. Brethren, pray for us. He's assaulted virtually every day of his life. I often tell that to young seminarians. Every day of your life, just this is an encouragement for them. Maybe they could find a different line of work. Every day of your life, someone is going to criticize something about you. Every day. It doesn't matter what it is. You won't even see it coming sometimes. And sometimes it'll be the smallest little thing that you, you, you never even dreamed of. And you'll hear the criticism. Sometimes people, they're going to have more than just a criticism. They'll be angry. They'll be oppositional to you. They don't like what you've said. They don't like that you have confronted things that are sin issues in their life. They don't like it. They will oppose you. And you're going to take it personal. You're going to take it personal. It's going to be fiercely difficult in your soul to endure some of the rejection you will receive. There's always rejection. Anybody who stands up in any position of leadership is always going to face some kind of rejection. And always some kind of criticism. It's always there. And Paul had definitely experienced rejection, run out of one city, run out of another one, beat, thrown into the sea, innumerable, innumerable ways of rejection. Always challenges you, what are you in this for? The affirmation of people, the acclaim of people, why are you in this? You can see why Paul would say, brethren, pray for us, pray for us. It would be an easier life not to preach. It would be an easier life not to disciple. It would be an easier life not to have to engage all of the sinful issues that go on. Regularly, 
there will be some interns who will come in to an elders meeting just to observe what goes on. It's good that these guys get to see what happens in an elders meeting before they become elders. And it never fails to shock them as they come out of the meeting, they come away saying, is everything so negative all the time? Is it always this bad? And we normally just quip with them, no, this was a great one. This was an easy one. Why, why is that? Well, is it always that? Well, there are victories, there are joys to celebrate, but usually when the elders come together and there's issues in the congregation to deal with, if they were easy, if they were issues that could have been handled elsewhere, they would have been. They're hard, and now they come to this group, and, and they've been long-term and habitual, and we've got to work through all kinds of nuances with it, and it's quite difficult. Brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. How should you pray for leaders? Let me give you just a few nuances that we find from the text here. Just pray for them often. The text here, the word pray for us is a command in the Greek text given in the present tense, meaning not just do it now, but do it over and over and over and over again. It's repetitive. Pray for us constantly. Pray for us all the time, often. And it's a command. Do this. It's necessary. When do you pray? When do you pray for the elders? When do you pray by name for the deacons of our church? When do you pray by name for those who are leading our church in the teaching of God's word? Is it scheduled into your week? Does it happen on a daily basis? Does it happen on a regular? And I'm not just talking about whoever's preaching on a Sunday morning, but all of the leaders as they're shepherding the flock. When do you pray? Would you say, yes, I pray often by name and with specifics in mind for them? Pray for them often. Secondly, pray for them personally. Personally. What do I mean by that? Well, notice he begins with the word brethren. He begins with the word brethren. 17 times in this letter, which is quite a lot for such a short letter like this, he refers to the Thessalonians as brothers and sisters in the Lord, brethren. First and second Thessalonians together, 26 times he refers to them as brothers and sisters, brethren. Now, it's possible that Paul is speaking to the leaders of the church, brothers pray for us, but more than likely, he has in mind the whole congregation. In light of what he says to come in the following verses, it's the entire congregation, the general membership of the church. He's asking for them to pray for him, and he sees himself as one of them. He's not just above them in some kind of authority that separates him from them. They are family. Brothers and sisters together, brethren, pray for us. We are like you. How do you need prayer? Then pray for your leaders that way. How do you need to grow? Then pray that your leaders will grow. What are the concerns on your heart and mind? My guess is your leaders will have similar kinds of concerns. Pray for them. Pray for them like they were a part of you. The only thing that really distinguishes an elder from the rest of the congregation is that the congregation has chosen them 
recognize specific gifts for them to teach the congregation and model the Christian faith for the congregation. We're just brothers alongside of you. That means you ought to develop personal relationships with your leaders, not always keep them at arm's length. If you want to pray for them as if they're brothers with you, then pray for them because you know them. Get to know them. Know their families. Know their strengths and weaknesses and pray for them like they were personal with you. We have multiple leaders in this church. You're not going to get to know all of them in the same way, to the same depth or degree, but you could get to know them. This is not so large a congregation that you can't do that. You can easily do that. Get to know them. In fact, don't just wait around for them to get to know you. You pursue that knowledge of them. Pray for them personally. Third, pray for them specifically. And I want to give you a few specifics from other places in the Bible that call us to pray for leaders. And I'll just give them to you very quickly. Pray for leaders specifically. What do we pray for them? Pray for their protection. Pray for their protection. Again, we unpack this at the first of the year, so I will just read it. Romans 15, verse 30. Paul, at the conclusion of the the book of Romans, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Battle with me. That's what that word strive means. Grapple with me in prayer that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient. What does that mean? Those who hate the word are going to set the target on the ones who communicate the word. If you can remove the one who communicates the word, you'll affect everyone who hears it. If you hit the shepherd, you'll scatter the flock. Pray for their protection. Pray for their protection. Secondly, pray for their acceptance. What do we mean by that? Not just their personal acceptance, but like Romans 15, 31. Pray that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. What's he asking for there? I'm coming to serve the saints. And in this particular case, he had an offering that he had been collecting from Gentile churches to come serve the saints in Jerusalem who had gone through a recent famine. He was coming to bless them with that, coming to invest in them. Pray that when I bring my ministry to them that the saints are open to it. Now, one of the great, the great joys of pastoring here, of serving here, is the, the deep hunger for the Word of God that exists in this congregation. And it is, it is deep and it's passionate. If I ever came and tried to preach something else, I, I don't think I would want to show up in the foyer afterward. I know. <laughs> I, I know what I would get. I would dread the next elders meeting. They would come with thermometers and everything. Are you okay? What's going on? So you're fine? So what are you doing? There's just a, there's a, a standard that we set to preach the word. And there's a great acceptance of the word here. 
one of the things I get to regularly share with other shepherds of other churches is I, I just regularly share this joy of my heart that there's such a receptivity of the truth of Scripture in the congregation here. That's not always the case. I could put in front of you a number of, of brothers in churches where they preach and they preach and they preach. They're trying to be patient. They're trying to be kind. And they simply want to deliver what the Word of God says. And it's just constant lack of reception. Angry hearts, bitter hearts, people who are so distrustful of leaders for whatever reasons. And every week those shepherds go home and they finish the Lord's Day and they're absolutely drained of everything emotionally because there's no acceptance of their ministry. It's hard to get up on Monday morning and say, I want to do this again. Then week after week after week, and there are many brothers like that in ministry. Sometimes we receive them here in our church when we host our, our annual weekender conference for church leaders and we, we see them and we, we get to minister to them and we see how beleaguered they can be. I've served in contexts where that was the case, where you know just standing up on a Sunday morning that the majority of the people out there really don't want to hear from you. Hard to believe. What's so joyful is that unless you tell me different today, doesn't seem to be the case here. There's such a joy in God's word. Would you keep praying for that? That doesn't just happen. That is God's grace in the hearts of people who hear the word. Pray that a minister, a shepherd, a pastor, an elder's ministry is accepted by the, the saints. Pray for their boldness. It's another way you can pray for them. Pray for their boldness. Think of the passage that was preached here not long ago, Ephesians 6, verse 19. When Paul said, I pray on, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. When there's opposition... When you know that you're going to say something that's going to cut against the grain of the culture or cut against the grain of even the culture of a church, when you know you've got something hard that has to be said, and there have been some moments like that over the past number of years. COVID was not our friend in so many ways. It created such a bitter, divisive attitude in so many ways. You knew that when you stood up, there was no way that you could make a pronouncement about what the church was going to do and not offend at least half the congregation. And there are times you, you simply say, I, I don't want to do it for another Sunday. But every week you have to get up and boldly say, this is what God says. Even that, when I say that pastor's sins are just like yours, have you ever had a Sunday where you thought, I'm just not spiritually feeling it? today, I tr just trust me. Your pastor has those times too. Your elders have those times. And they, they know their sins and they're about to stand up and rebuke themselves. Pray that they'll be bold anyway. That they need to hear their own voice decry their own failures and push them to the grace of God. 
pray that they'll be bold because there's too many occasions not to be. Pray for their readiness. Pray for their readiness. Think of Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which also I have been in prison. Pray for us that God would open a door. Do you pray that your shepherds are ready to see and walk through the doorways of ministry opportunity for the gospel's sake. We've, we've said to you a number of times as a church, we feel very, very specifically that the Lord would want us, because it's a biblical desire, it's a biblical thing, he would want us to strengthen other churches outside of our own, plant other congregations as a means of evangelizing areas where the gospel's not clearly presented. That's one of the reasons why we raise up leaders. We put so much time and attention into developing men to be elders, whether formal elders vocationally or elders formally that are non-vocational elders. We're putting a lot of time and effort into that. Why? So we can send people out. Would you also pray that we would be ready? That we would see the opportunity and be ready to pull the trigger and come to the church and say, here's what's in front of us. Let's pray together and move together. Pray that we will be ready to take advantage of the next ministry opportunities that are in front of us. Sometimes it's easy to pass those over. What do you mean send people out? If we sent 20 people out of here, do you know what that would do to the finances? Do you know what that would do to the leadership? Do you know what that would do to our own ministry? Yeah, but the gospel, God, God will plug the holes here. There's other places that have need. Can we send some of our finest and our best out to those places? Are we ready to do that? Would you pray that your leaders have that kind of mindset? Now, if you pray that way, it causes you to pray for their ministry more than just for your own personal desires. It causes you to pray for gospel-centered kinds of things in their life. And let me say, it's as a, it, it is of extreme importance that you pray for those who lead you. It is to your benefit that you pray for those who lead you. Again, you strike the shepherd, the flock will scatter. We've seen that, haven't we? We've seen leaders fall. And we've seen the impact that that has on the flock. If you're praying for them, that might cause you to remember them. Remember what they've said. Remember what they've instructed. Remember how they've exhorted. And what, what will that do to you? It will cause you to grow. Right? If you pray biblically for your leaders, you have to remember the things that they're teaching, the life that they're leading, the example that they're demonstrating, and you, you'll grow. This is to your benefit that you pray for those who lead you. Pray the same things that you would pray for others. Pray them for your leaders. So pray with complete confidence in the Lord to finish the work that he is going to do in us. Pray, intercede for your leaders. 
third. A third encouragement that will help us to continue to grow in what we know. Express your fellowship. Express your fellowship. Here's every introvert's favorite verse. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Yeah. (laughs) There's some who really like that verse and some who don't. They're all in this room. You know, if he'd just said greet each other, we'd be fine with this. It's that kissing part that bothers us. It is misunderstood by a lot of people even in the ancient world. I found a quote from the, uh, from the ancient world around the first century. Around the first century. Uh, Athenagoras warns about the abuse of this custom of kissing each other in the church. He says, quote, the Lagos has said, if anyone kiss a second time because it has given him pleasure, he sins. <laughs> kiss, but don't kiss too much, I guess. The kiss is the common oriental greeting. It remains so today in many countries of the Mediterranean and the Middle East. But I want you to notice a few things about this, and we'll, we'll talk about its application here in a moment. But I want you to see first that our expression of fellowship, and that's really what this is, is an expression of our fellowship. It is commanded. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It is a command. And it's not intended to be the command for those who simply have the badge, greeter. That's not a spiritual gift, by the way. You say, well, the greeters are just those who are the outgoing ones. We stick them at the front door, maybe put them out in the parking lot when it's not this cold outside. And they, they greet people. We have greeters and we have sitters. No, those aren't spiritual gifts. This is a command for everyone, for the whole congregation to greet each other. It is for every Christian, even the introverted ones and those who say, I'm, I'm not really a hugger. Fine, shake a hand, do something, but intentionally greet one another. Think about this. What are you telegraphing about yourself when you do not initiate greeting. I'm not talking about how you receive it. When you do not initiate, what are you telegraphing about yourself? What are are you saying about your heart when you do initiate it? Maybe you need to consider this prayerfully even before you come into church on Sunday. This is something we talk about sometimes with our with our pastoral interns who who love to study the Bible. They love to study. It's the people part that bothers them, which is really a struggle for pastoral ministry, isn't it? They say, well, I'm not very strong at that. How do you get strong at that? Well, here's what I would suggest. Before you get out of your car, and don't let yourself stay in the car more than five minutes, (laughs) before you get out of your car on Sunday morning, remind yourself, I want to engage people in fellowship this morning. 
Think about questions you might ask about someone's life to engage them personally. And then walk through the doors and hunt for someone who's not as comfortable to greet. Come in a different door each week and greet someone new. Greet each other. Greet each other. It's a command. Now, I want to show you something else about this. Our expression of fellowship should also be specific. And what do I mean by that? Notice he says, greet all the brethren. This is interesting. Most of the time when the Apostle Paul gives this command, greet with a holy kiss, he says, greet each other. Here he says, greet the brethren. Why? Well, again, as I said, he has used this term many times in this letter because he wants this congregation to look at each other as if they were a part of each other. They are family. They are a group of people who are friends with one another. They are brethren. So greet each other like you are brothers and sisters together. In other words, the greeting that you give should be so distinct that the world would look at the affection we have for each other and the love that we have for one another, and they could tell this is different than the two guys at work who are cutting a deal and they shake hands over it. There's something about our greeting here that says we have an affection for each other that is not common. Should be specific. So that's a good thing, isn't it? We're not called here to kiss everybody, just our brothers. This doesn't mean that we don't greet those outside the faith. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5:47. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, what was he saying there? If you're only going to greet the kind of people who are like you ethnically, like you relationally, like you personally, if you're only going to greet the people who feel comfortable to you, then you're not different than the non-Christian world. So we're to greet the brothers and sisters that God has sovereignly, providentially put in this church. They are all here for you. Did you know that? God put every one of the brothers and sisters in this church here for you and you for them. So another nuance I want to point out here. This should be a unifying expression. It should be unifying. Another interesting note about this phrase that's different than some of his other phrases when he uses this same injunction is he says, greet all the brethren. He emphasizes that here, greet all the brethren. Not only the ones who please you in Christ, but all of the saints. I can only imagine that there were saints who disagreed with one another in the church in Thessalonica, there were saints who sat there on a Lord's Day and they'd experienced grief and loss. There were saints who were wondering, is it really worth it to keep coming here and being a part of this church because there doesn't seem to be any cultural benefit to this. It seems to get harder, this Christian faith does. 
Greet all of them. What about the solitary person sitting in the pew by themselves on a Sunday and they look like they just don't want anybody to bother them? What should you do? In Jesus' name, bother them. And I don't mean in in a negative way. Pray for them. Get to know them. Find out what's going on in their life that might be what they need that day, even if they don't think they want it. It might be what they actually need. All the brethren. There aren't some people that you come here to fellowship and others that you intentionally don't. If you have that in your mind, that there are people here that I would not intentionally engage with, those are the people more than likely the Lord would have you to greet first. To learn to push through that, to appreciate them because God in his grace has brought them here and they are here for you and you are here for them. Greet all of them. Should be unifying. There should be such a unity here and seen in the tangible expression of the way we even greet one another. Another and final nuance of this phrase, our greeting should be Christian. It should be full of Christ-likeness. Where do we get that idea? From the little word holy. It is a holy kiss. If the kiss were the common way in the Middle East, even in the ancient Near East and Far East, in which someone would casually greet someone or even formally greet someone, your greeting must not be common. It must be Christian. It is a holy kiss. It is like the sinful woman in Luke 7, who when she saw Jesus... And knew that he was a savior who would forgive her of her sins. Do you remember what the text says in Luke 7? Jesus refers to her. And he points to a Pharisee and says to the Pharisee, When I entered the house, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Do you remember Judas? His was an unholy kiss, wasn't it? It was a common greeting, but it was the signal of rebellion as well, wasn't it? And he took something that should be precious and that should display loyalty, friendship, kindness, affection, and he kissed Jesus on the cheek to betray him. In other words, a holy kiss has everything to do with your intention, your mindset, your heart's attitude towards the person in which you greet. It must be full of the grace of God. But that person is struggling with sins that really offend me. Then a Christian greeting would be full of grace, not rejection. Mercy, not stiff arm. It's Christian. This person always seems to have needs. They're never not needy. Greet them again. Welcome them because God has welcomed them in Christ. They are here because they need us and we need them. You can throw up any any kind of excuse you want, but is it a heart of Christian grace that 
you have in your mind when you put your hand out to shake the hand, when you put your arms around their neck and you hug them in Christ, when you express to them your love and your affection and loyalty as a brother or sister in the Lord, is it because the gospel is driving your thoughts? Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. This has really nothing much to do with kissing, to be honest. That was just the common greeting. But have you noticed we live in such a sexually supercharged society where expressions of friendship and unified affection have been so abused, so sexualized in unholy ways that people don't even really want to greet anymore. It's killing our greetings. It puts everyone on guard against each other. It's, it's killing our expressions of unity. We, we live in a world where people tend to express very little overt affection for one another because it violates personal space or individualism. It seems to be a sign of weakness perhaps. And so they just kind of back away, give a nod, and that's about it. That's a violation of God's word. You understand that. To not greet each other, to not greet all the brothers and sisters is a violation of the scripture. Maybe you should come a little earlier, linger a little longer, so you could engage with each other a little bit more. We need to greet one another. I would say if you're the kind of person that's struggling to connect and have fellowship with people, could you just examine one area? What does your greeting look like? What does the intentionality of your greeting other people in the church look like? Addressing that one thing might begin to bring the walls of disconnection down. So pray, pray with complete confidence and you'll grow. Intercede for your leaders and you'll grow. Express your fellowship. I promise you, if you'll do that, you will grow. You'll grow in what you know. Fourth, equip the whole congregation. Here's a fourth encouragement to keep growing in what you know. Equip the whole congregation. Verse 27 I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. I adjure you by the Lord. That is a very strong term, I adjure you. I command you. I plead with you with intensity. Make sure that this letter is read to everyone. In fact, the word read is a word that typically means to read publicly. It's used in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. has the idea of stand in front of the whole congregation and make sure you read this to everyone in the church. Read it. Explain it. Apply it. Equip them. That's essentially what he's saying. Make sure everyone in the church hears this letter. 
So they can use this letter, so they can talk about this letter, so they can take these concepts and be encouraged with them and helped by them. That's the work we're called to do. You remember Paul's exhortation in the book of Ephesians and his reminder of why we have gifted leaders in the church. Ephesians chapter 5, or pardon me, chapter 4, verse 11. Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why did he give those? Well, we, we know this. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. What are the saints to be equipped to do? Well, he says the saints are to do the work of service. What is the work of service? Have you ever stopped and really thought through that? What is the work of service? Well, you don't have to really wonder if you just keep reading in Ephesians 4. He tells you what the work of service actually is. It is the building up of the body of Christ. How is the body built up? When the saints see it as their work to build each other up. As a result, he'll say, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the true knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, and we're no longer children, whose responsibility is that? It's not the pastor's responsibility to show or to ensure that all of the members are mature. It is the body's responsibility to disciple each other to pour into one another where each joint is doing what it is supposed to do within the body so the body is built up. That's a divine mandate, by the way. When Jesus says, go, Matthew 28, and make disciples, that's not for those who are gifted evangelists. That's for every disciple. Every disciple is to make disciples. It's our job. It's a mutual mandate. We are to do that in each other's lives. It's a corporate mandate. We're to come and to hear the word preached and proclaimed and taught, urged upon our conscience so that we do something with it in each other's life. That's what we're called to do. When Paul says, I adjure you to read this letter to the whole church, do you think he meant, I just want to make sure that you get the whole thing out and that's it. Just read it and that's it. No, he has in mind, you read it with the aim that this church is going to do something with it. We try to follow that injunction carefully here. The content of our sermons is week by week unpacking the scriptures verse by verse, book by book so that we see the divine intention involved in it. So we see the words as the Holy Spirit intended unpacked so we understand them. This assumes then that the church actually comes and hears the word too, doesn't it? That they come and they hear and they listen to the word publicly read and proclaimed. You're a part of the church. You receive it. You invest it in each other. You own that as a responsibility. That's our ministry. That will cause you to grow in what you know. 
Every time you have to impart something into the life of someone else, you grow. Every teacher, every person who's taught anything knows that. If you have to prepare to teach, you, you grow in it even more. Well, you don't have to teach from a pulpit like this. You don't have to teach in a classroom, but you could sit down across a kitchen table. You could sit in the living room together. You could sit at a coffee shop together. You could open the Bible. You could read it together. You could pray for each other. You could talk about how it's applied in one another's lives. You'll have to confront sin. You'll have to encourage discouraged people. You'll rejoice with those who are rejoicing. You'll weep with those who weep. When he says, I adjure you, read this letter. He's saying, make sure the whole church hears the word of God. The whole church. Pray with complete confidence. Intercede for your leaders. Express your fellowship. Equip the whole congregation last. Verse 28. Rely on grace. Rely on grace. Simple verse, isn't it? Common verse to end the letter with. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, did you remember how he began the letter? Verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. He finishes the letter, grace be with you. So what do you think he has in his mind? What is the grace specifically that he intends? The content of this letter. What he exhorts in this letter is grace to you. What he expects at the conclusion is that this grace that God has given you in the content of this letter remain with you. This is an undeserved kindness from God that he has given us his word and his truth and he's imparted it to us. He's given it to us and he's praying at the end that it would remain with us. And it is grace. God's unearned kindness how are you going to keep all these commands? How do you rejoice always by God's grace? How do you give thanks in everything? God's grace. How do you pray without ceasing? God's grace. How do you greet everyone? God's grace. You obey every command in this letter. You absorb every encouragement. You respond to every correction. Because God gives you the grace to do so. Everything, listen carefully to this. Everything God calls you to do in his word, everything, he provides you the grace to do. You understand that? He never calls you to do something he will not give you the ability or grace to do. Everything he calls you to do, like all the content of this letter, he calls you to do it, he will provide you the grace to do it. Well, this doesn't fit me. This is not my. He'll give you the grace to do it. Yes, you can do this. But you must trust. You must trust that he will show you that favor to apply this word so that it remains with you and in you. This should be a congregation that's known as we apply the word as a people of grace. You say, ah, well, that means we need to throw out things like church discipline. No. 
Actually, church discipline is a means of God's grace, isn't it? It is. But we're not here just to, if you sin, you're out kind of discipline. In fact, we, we've been known to be so patient here that people ask oftentimes, so, so exactly when are you going to pull the trigger? Well, if there's even an inch of movement forward, if the fight is going on, then we're patient. Why? Because that's the way the Lord treats us every day. Right? So grace, grace be with you. Rely on the grace of God. The grace of God that is the content of this letter applied by his favor and his kindness. So if I pray with complete confidence that God will finish what he starts, I intercede for the leaders of this church with fervency, intentionality, and regular. If I express fellowship the way the Bible calls me to do in investing in each other, if I look to equip the whole congregation and engage in kind of a kind of biblical fellowship together and trust the grace of God, how would I not grow? How would I not grow? So in this final conclusion that we run through so quickly and pass off as if it were just the sincerely of a letter, Do you see what the apostle is telling us? Here's how you keep growing in what you know. I want you to think about even one of these five elements that seems to target where you are personally. That you could focus on even this week in growing in. And maybe use this as a barometer and a help. And I think you'll find yourself, if you'll practice them, You will grow in the things that the Lord has taught you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for a time to meditate on your word. A time to think carefully about the truth that you've revealed, you've given us in Christ. I pray for the person here today who has not given themselves over in belief and faith to Jesus. I pray that you would show them there is a community, there is a relationship with others, there is a life that is better because it is in Christ. I pray you would open their eyes to see their need because of their sin in front of you and show them what Jesus has done to pay for all of their sin, all of it to cover it completely, and to guarantee complete sanctification. I pray you would draw them to Christ. Father, we intercede for one another that we will apply these truths as a body together, that we would apply these truths in a way that show the lordship of Jesus Christ over us, that relies upon your grace. Help us to be this kind of a congregation. Take the truths that we have been studying these many months. Apply them deeply in our fellowship. Change us and transform us by your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.